1 Samuel chapter 30. We're going to continue in our series, Victory from Defeat. 1 Samuel chapter 30. I'm going to read verses 16 through 20 this morning. And when he had brought him down, behold, they were spread abroad upon the earth, eating and drinking and dancing, because of all the great spoil that they had taken out of the land of the Philistines and out of the land of Judah. And David smote them from the twilight even unto the evening of the next day, and there escaped not a man of them, save four hundred young men, which rode upon camels and fled. And David recovered all that the Amalekites had carried away, and David rescued his two wives. And there was nothing lacking to them, neither small nor great, neither sons nor daughters, neither spoil nor anything that they had taken to them. David recovered all. And David took all the flocks and the herds which they drave before those other cattle and said, This is David's spoil. David was in the predicament that this passage describes as a result of a series of choices he made in his life. He honored and obeyed his father. He believed God and won the victory over Goliath. And he served King Saul, counting him as God's anointed. As a result, according to the book of Acts chapter 13, verse 22, God referred to David as a man after mine own heart. But at this particular time, David and his men had been on the move for some six years because King Saul wanted to kill him. King Saul was jealous. He feared that David would be the next king and take over his throne. And as a result, wanted to end this threat to his position. So David and his men were constantly on the move. And at this point in his life, he sought refuge among the enemies of God, the Philistines. In fact, King Achish, the Philistine king, gave to David the city of Ziklag, and David and his men lived and sought refuge there. Well, upon returning to Ziklag from a three-day journey, David and his men found their city had been burned, their loved ones taken captive, their homes destroyed, and all their possessions gone. This was a result of a marauding force of Amalekites who had been wreaking havoc on the region during those days. To say the least, it was extremely discouraging. In fact, David's men talked of stoning him for their dilemma. However, throughout this, these great trials that David experienced, in fact, I believe this was the greatest of trials that he had ever faced at this point in his life, he remained faithful to the Lord and he encouraged himself in the Lord. His response to this tragic situation underscores his desire to rely completely on the Lord. Here and we see how David reacted to this turn of events and learned four great lessons applicable to us as Christians today when we face great trials of life. Those four lessons here, verses 1 through 8, prayer in the midst of pain. Verses 9 through 15, compassion in the midst of conflict. Today, we'll see obedience in the midst of opposition. And next Sunday, verses 21 through 31, graciousness in the midst of greed. 
When David and his men came back, they found their city ransacked. He asked the Lord what they should do. Should they pursue? And God told him, yes, to pursue. And God promised that they would recover what belonged to them. So he had the assurance that the Lord was going to direct them and aid them in this matter. He and his men pursued now for 16 miles to the brook Besor. The brook Besor was a wide riverbed with high slopes on each side. It was dry at this particular time, but it was very difficult to cross. Uh, and as a result, 200 of David's men were so exhausted they could not go on. So they stayed there. David and his 400 men pursued. Emotions were high. Exhaustion was extensive, but their resolve was unwavering. However... Along the way, David chose to interrupt their pursuit and care for an ailing Egyptian that was found in the way. Can you imagine how some of his men felt about that particular situation? No doubt, angry, frustrated, tired. They said, we couldn't even wait for our own men to regain enough strength to join us. Why are we wasting time with this Egyptian who's near death? Well... This next lesson, we learn from this event the importance of obedience. Obedience demands trust, it requires action, and it brings reward. Look at verse 16 with me, if you will, as we begin here, looking at these three aspects of this particular lesson today. Obedience demands trust. And when he had brought him down, behold, they were spread abroad upon all the earth, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil that they had taken out of the land of the Philistines and out of the land of Judah. First of all, we see we have to trust the Lord to direct us to the right place. Notice it starts out by saying, and when he had brought him down, behold, they... Uh, you know, sometimes the biblical use of pronouns is, is amazing and a little confusing. But here, he stands for the Egyptian slave. Him is David, and they refers to the celebrating Amalekites. You see, he, the Egyptian slave, is a key figure in this story and provides the turning point to the entire event. I don't want to take time to read it, but remind you back in 1 Samuel 30, chapter 11, verses 15, we see where this man came into play. Notice verse 13, David said unto him, To whom belongest thou, and whence art thou? And he said, I am a young man of Egypt, servant to an Amalekite, and my master left me, because three days agone I fell sick. We made an invasion upon the south of the Carathites, and upon the coast which belongeth to Judah, and upon the south of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag with fire. And David said, Canst thou bring me down to this company? David realized this delay had proved to be very rewarding. For he came in contact now with this man, who was a slave of one of the leaders of the Amalekite band, we know this because the man knew of their plans and as well knew where they were going. David realized he now had an opportunity to gain the upper hand over his enemies. You see, nomadic raiders were not easy to find, and it was a miracle that David's company came across this man. 
His master abandoned him because he was ill. The man was left to perish in the wilderness, but the Lord kept him alive long enough for David and his men to find him. And the slave's master must have been an important man because the servant knew of the plans of the Amalekites. So here we see a, now a mutual trust between this Egyptian and David. David wanted to know where the Amalekites were, and the Egyptian wanted deliverance. By the way, this Egyptian gives us a great picture of salvation, a sinner in need of a savior. You see, in order for him to receive the gift of deliverance, he had to change masters. No longer following an evil one who would lead him to destruction, but a kind and gentle master who would safely lead him on. Oh, isn't it our Lord who said, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus in John 6, 37 declared, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and he that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. And the last invitation of the Bible, Revelation twenty two seventeen declares, And the Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let him that heareth say, Come, and let him that is a thirst come, and whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely." Yes, we serve a good and gracious master. Jesus Christ is a wonderful Savior. For the scripture declares, His name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. For He it was who made it possible for us to be redeemed from the slave market of sin and to be born again, to be birthed into the family of God, made joint heirs with the Lord Jesus Christ, and been given the promise of a home in heaven. Yes, this Egyptian pictures a sinner coming to the Savior. But we note, David in this situation provides us a great picture of a saint who wholeheartedly trusts the Lord. You see, David had been directed by the Lord to pursue the enemy. But now he had to trust the Lord to provide a direction for them to go that they might find the enemy. You know, it's one thing to chase after somebody when you know where they are and where they're going. It's another thing altogether to follow somebody when you don't know where they are. You don't know where they're going. You know where they've been. You might know the general direction, but oh, how easy it would be to head off in the wrong direction simply because you don't know the right way to follow. David learned a great lesson here because God provided an unusual circumstance by which he would grant direction to David. Psalm 37 verse 5, in fact a psalm of David, he said, commit thy way unto the Lord, trust also in him and he shall bring it to pass. Beloved, obedience is so very important in this matter of gaining victory over death. Obedience demands trust. David demonstrated that. Psalm 32 verse 8, I will instruct thee and teach thee in the way which thou shalt go. I will guide thee with mine eyes. Psalm 62 verse 8, trust in him at all times. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him and he shall direct thy paths. Obedience, if we're wanting to obey the Lord, we have to be willing to trust His direction and leadership and guidance in our lives. Jeremiah 17, 7 declared, Blessed is the man that trusteth in the Lord and whose hope the Lord is. 
All we see here, he had to trust the Lord for direction to know which way to go. He also had to trust the Lord for direction that he might get there at the right time. Again, back in verse 16, they were spread abroad upon all the earth, eating and drinking and dancing. The wording here emphasizes how the Amalekites were not expecting any kind of retaliation, either from the Philistines or from the inhabitants of Judah. But they had no idea how determined David and his men were to get their families back. They had no visible cause of danger, yet they were nearest to destruction. They were content. They were happy. They felt they had been a success in their plans to attack these different border cities and gain great wealth. Their revelry indicated their carelessness in underestimating David's resolve. Because they were close to home, they were lulled into a false sense of security. The last thing they expected was a surprise attack during their victory celebration. Oh, this demonstrates to us that sinners are nearest to ruin when they cry, Peace and safety. 1 Thessalonians 5.3 For when they shall say, Peace and safety, then sudden destruction come upon them, as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. 2 Peter 2.9 The Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptations, and to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. Proverbs 27 verse 1 warns us, Boast not thyself of tomorrow, for thou knowest not what a day may bring forth. All these Amalekite soldiers, they thought they had been successful. They thought their plans went perfectly. They thought they were just a matter of miles away from safety in their own homeland. Yet we find they were faced with sudden destruction. Someone has said, trust God in spite of the badness of the way. Distrust self in spite of the comforts of the way. Another has said, God may lead us into troubled waters, but only to deepen our trust in him. David and his men learned a great lesson that God will direct us in the way and he will get us to where he wants us to go at the right time. Timing is so important as it was in this situation. Not only does obedience demand trust, but it requires action. Notice verse 17. And David smote them from the twilight even unto the evening of the next day. And there escaped not a man of them save 400 young men which rode upon camels and fled. The Amalekites, they were out of battle formation. They were scattered over the countryside and in no condition for combat. It was evident from the circumstances that David's men had the advantage. However, they still needed to respond to the task at hand. You see, the battle must be fought for the victory to be won. It wasn't enough just to surround their enemy. It wasn't enough just to have the upper hand. No, they had to take action. They had to go into this battle if they wanted to regain that which belonged to them. We see two things here. We see the steadfastness in battle. It says, And David smote them from twilight even unto the evening of the next day. Remember, these men were so near exhaustion. They had been on the move now for over three days. 
They were running ahead as quickly as they could. They were pressing on as hard as their bodies would enable them to. And no doubt, they were at the point of exhaustion. But can you picture someone who's involved in a marathon, a race of some sort, of great distance, and as they push uh, push on, their body is weakening, they're struggling, their body is starting to tire, they're running out of energy. But they come to a point in that race, professional runners will tell us, we come to a point where we feel like we're going to run into a wall. Then when we get beyond that, it's like we're re-energized and we get that second win. We get that extra push and it enables us to go on to the finish line. I believe that's what happened with these men. They saw this, this Amalekite band. They saw their families and all their possessions there spread along that valley. And they, be, they became energized now and were able to continue with the battle for nearly 24 hours. Oh, how amazing. They fought as best they could. They were determined. They were steadfast. They weren't going to give up. And as a result, God gave them the victory. Beloved, we need to be mindful that if we want to experience victory from defeat, we must be steadfast and we must continue in the battle of life, being good soldiers of the cross, being good servants of the Lord, and not give up just because times get tough and the going gets hard. First Peter chapter 5 verse 8. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. Whom resist steadfast into faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. We're in a battle. We're in a battle between righteousness and unrighteousness, between heaven and hell, between good and evil. And we need to continue faithfully, unflinchingly, steadfastly doing that which God gives us to do. Romans 8.37, we are assured in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. You see, the battle's not ours. The battle is the Lord's. Be steadfast in facing that battle. But not only the steadfastness in the battle, but their success in the battle. There escaped not a man of them save 400 young men which rode upon camels and fled David and his men sprang like a leopard upon the revelers and completely overpowered a much larger force. How do we know it was a much larger force? Well, 400 men escaped. That was equal to the number of David's men that went into this. So no doubt, it was a much larger body. But because of their physical condition, because of their drunkenness, because of their being spread out and unprepared, the Amalekites were unable to defend themselves. And David's men went in into this, and they were successful in battle because they were determined they were going to win because God had given them the promise that they would overtake their enemy. And this is an amazing, successful attack considering he only had 400 men at this time and they were so tired. Yet, that's what the Lord said would happen. You know, sometimes our circumstances seem so contrary to us. And we get discouraged, we get defeated, but we forget God can overcome 
our circumstances. The works of his hands are verity and judgment. All his commandments are sure. He promised them they would win the battle. God promises that he will call us home. God promises he will take care of us and provide for us in this life. He will watch over us. He will direct us. He will grant victory in the way. We simply need to trust him. Psalm 119 verse 16, thy word is true from the beginning and every one of of thy righteous judgments endureth forever. Yes, God makes promises to care for his own and we need to take him at his word. Edwin Chapin, pastor from back in the 1800s said, every action of our lives touches on some chord that will vibrate in eternity. Someone else has said, realizing your need without acting upon it leaves you in the same place you started. You see, obedience not only demands trust, but it requires action. Then we see in verses 18, 19, and 20, obedience brings reward. How interesting, because the previous section we looked at, their delay brought reward. David demonstrated compassion to one in need and was rewarded. Now, we see they're going to demonstrate obedience and as well be rewarded for that. Verse 18, And David recovered all that the Amalekites had carried away. And David rescued his two wives. And there was nothing lacking to them, neither small nor great, neither sons nor daughters, neither spoil, nor anything that they had taken to them. David recovered all. And David took all the flocks and the herds which they drave before those other cattle, And said, this is David's spoil. David's reward here was threefold. Their possessions were returned. The prisoners were released. And David was praised of his men. Their victory was so complete that David recovered all. That's pretty amazing when you think about it. They got everything back that had been taken from them. He and his men not only recovered their own families and properties, but they recovered large quantities of goods that had been taken by the Amalekites in their raids of other cities as well. This included, no doubt, weapons, ornaments, jewels, money, clothes, camels, sheep, cattle, and much more. When this was separated from the rest of the people's belongings, it was given to David and called David's spoil. Remember, we mentioned earlier... This chapter began with David's men grieved, angry, and ready to stone him. But now they're praising him and bestowing gifts upon him. David chose to trust God and was rewarded accordingly. And beloved, when we step out by faith and trust the Lord, God will not only guide us and protect us, but he will reward us for our obedience and trust in him. Deuteronomy 11.26 declares, Behold, I set before you this day a blessing and a curse. A blessing if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you this day, and a curse if you will not obey the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside out of the way which I command you this day to go after other gods which you have not known. 1 Samuel chapter 15, you're familiar with this passage of scripture wherein it declares, Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of rams. 
Jeremiah 33, 3, Call unto me, and I will answer thee, and show thee great and mighty things, which thou knowest not. Ephesians 1, 19, And what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward, who believe? According to the working of his mighty power. Yes, obedience brings rewards. Ephesians 3.20, Now unto him that is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us. If we want to experience victory, if we want to see God working mightily in our lives, if we want to be lifted up from the pit of discouragement and depression, we need to be obedient and trust the Lord through the difficulties of life. These lessons that we consider in this series, prayer in the midst of pain, compassion in the midst of conflict, obedience in the midst of opposition. It's one thing to pray. It's another thing to be kind to others. But beloved, if we're not obeying the Lord, we're missing out on a very important aspect of the Christian faith. Obey God. Trust the Lord in every way. Hudson Taylor said, God isn't looking for people of great faith, but for individuals ready to follow him. Another has said, there is no alternative to obedience. Let me close this morning this illustration. The Pledge of Allegiance is not a verse composed by the founding fathers of our republic. It was written especially for children in the summer of 1892 to commemorate the 400th anniversary of Christopher Columbus's arrival in the New World, and it was to be recited in public schools throughout the country. Pledge first appeared in print on September 8, 1892, in the Youth's Companion, an educational publication. In its original form, this is how it was given. I pledge allegiance to my flag and the republic for which it stands, one nation, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Its author, Francis Bellamy, was a Baptist minister's son from upstate New York, and he was an assistant editor of the Youth's Companion. He was the one given the task of writing a pledge that students could recite on that one day in October. It became so popular that it was recited regularly on Columbus Day celebrations. And then eventually, it was recited in classrooms daily. It became one of the earliest verses memorized by students. Since its original writing, it's undergone two major alterations. You know about one of them. The first was in 1923. A national flag conference presided over by the American Legion and the Daughters of the American Revolution replaced... The ambiguous term, my flag, wording with the more patriotic term, the flag of the United States. And then a year later, the phrase of America was added. But in 1954, Dwight D. Eisenhower, president at that time, signed a bill that added the words, under God. As Christians, we reject the idea of omitting the phrase, under God, from that pledge. We become defensive when someone challenges that term being included in our Pledge of Allegiance or 
on our coins and currency. People lobby hard against it and they want it removed, but we as Christians stand in opposition to the decision or to the plan or the effort to remove the phrase under God from the pledge and from our currency. However, I would ask you this question. Have our lives and our actions already removed that phrase? We want to pledge to a nation under God, but are we living under God's control? We want to pray in schools and public gatherings, but are we praying at home with our families? We want to be free to say Jesus' name in public, yet are we crying out to him in private? We as God's people need to make sure our lives are governed by the Lord. That means obedience is of paramount importance to us as God's children. Under God is so important to us as a nation. Is it important to us as individuals? Are we obeying the Lord?